the brands that will be here in, in 20, 30, 100 years are not going to be the soccer mom brands. Maybe in 100, I guess. If you look at alcohol, again, as a parallel, it's like the white claws of the world only come about every now and then. Anheuser-Busch and their family of brands and a lot of the liquor brands, like those are the staples. And there are definitely some extensions of those that are that are going after a demographic, but it's like the people that drink beer drink most of the beer, right? That's the, that is the punchline. And I spent a lot of time like leaning into like normalizing cannabis and, and all this, and, and that's nice. And that day will come, but the people that consume cannabis are not the people that are trying to hide it and that are, you know, afraid to be a part of that culture. And that's where we're like really leaning into cannabis consumers because they buy weed. And like I said, the, the brands of the future will be formed by the culture. They are not manufactured by marketing agencies. Hello, everyone. My name is Chris Powers, and I want to thank you so much for joining me today on the Fort Podcast. This show is an open-ended discussion and journey covering real estate, business, entrepreneurship, and investing. I would love to hear from you by tweeting me at Fort Worth Chris on Twitter. And if you've enjoyed this show, I would be super grateful if you would follow it on Apple, Spotify, or whatever platform you're listening on. And if on Apple, it would mean a lot if you'd leave a rating or review. And last but not least, you can check all these episodes out on YouTube. So thank you again for joining me and enjoy the show. Colin Landforce, thank you for joining me today. I've been really pumped about this. Let's get started with kind of how you found your way into the, the cannabis industry, and then we'll get into the company that you built. Amazing. Yeah. So I'm never very good at the the elevator pitch of the story, but it goes something like some guys that I grew up with were the sales team at one of the early brands in Oregon, which of course means one of the early brands in cannabis um, in terms of legal legal brands. And I was kind of coming to an end at my previous gig, which was in consumer drones, as you as you would have it. I spent a lot of time in restricted consumer products, drones, guns, skincare, that kind of stuff. And so I was coming to an end with a gig and they were operating out of a auto shop, a, a former auto shop and flipping packs, as one would say. This is in late medical before recreational in Oregon and figuring it out. So I jumped in from there. That was four and a half years ago. And very, very quickly, it's like, with distribution, you can do anything, right? So that was the whole that was the whole game for the first 18 months, 24 months is like, we're selling product, we're selling really bulk flour um, to a network of our friends, knowing that as we decide what we want to ultimately do, that having that network is, uh, will be the vehicle for it. So that was the beginning. That's the origin story, right? So fast forward several years, we've done a couple rounds of M&A. The, the brands that we started in that garage are all up and down the West Coast along with Corova, that is our 800-pound gorilla. We've got grows, we've got retail, we've got, as of a couple of weeks ago, delivery service, distribution hubs, uh, SoCal, NorCal, Portland. And that is the lay of the land. And how did you get into that when, when we talked earlier, your desire in life was to actually be an architect? <laughs> we were talking, that was one of the, the early what I want to be when I grow up. I don't think I actually ended up having a what I want to be when I grow up. I still think about that now. Like I wonder, I turned 35 yesterday and I wonder what I want to ultimately do. I still kind of generally feel that way, right? I'm, I love building things. 
and I kind of stumbled into cannabis and, and cannabis CPG being being what uh, I've been building for four or five years now. But that being said, I'm super interested in your world. I love architecture. I know that's not what you do, but I especially have an affinity for uh, converted commercial buildings or repurposed uh, real estate. It's really interesting. All right. So you kind of get started in the industry and you were talking about the network. And so when it started, you guys were just buying in bulk basically weed and then distributing it to dispensaries throughout California. Is that a fair way to say it? Or Oregon initially. But okay, yes. Oregon. Yes, yes. And what what was like the team like at that point? Was it you and a couple guys or was it a, a kind of a, a company or just a couple guys as like a hobby business type thing? Right. It went from like four to seven or eight pretty quickly. But early on, it was like sales team and then me me figuring out the ops one day at a time. And yeah, so like four to eight was like a big, a big stepping stone. And then very quickly from there, like 18 months into it, right, we're, we're, we're landing on what product lines we want to roll out. We're, we're building a manufacturing team and building that out. So it was, I mean, it was very tight knit. We used to joke looking, looking back at the photos, right? It was a, uh, it was the oil, oil garage in an auto shop. It was about 800 square feet. We had a military grade shipping container. We bought from a guy that like restores Humvees, and that's where the product was stored. And then we had a conference table, <laughs> in like in the shop. That was like that was it. There were no windows. There were two garage doors, and that was the uh, beginnings. It was very, very humble. I think there were still tires up in the roof uh, from when we moved in, and it all just came about like super quickly. Um, and then all of a sudden, you're dealing with leases, and it's like we don't want to go commit something for five years. God knows what that looks like. Here's a place we can get in for a year and and go from there. Silicon Valley has the the garages that everybody started. And when cannabis is a mature industry, everybody's going to talk about that oil shop one day. Yep, absolutely. Absolutely. It's a lot of basements and garages. I love it. Okay, so in that shop, you basically had made, I guess, a deal with maybe a grower or a few growers that were growing different types of weed. And y'all were taking it in. And then were y'all just basically distributing it still as a flower or were you all turning it into edibles and oils and things like that? Right. The so the network was built bulk flower, like you said, just buy buy 50, buy a hundred, and then go sell it to to retailers, you know, one at a time. And our first foray into doing uh, consumer packaged goods was a pre-roll. And we we landed there just because even to this day, you go into a a shop and you say, I want a joint, it's a total coin toss if that that joint's going to be easy to light, burn well, be an enjoyable experience. So very early on, we're like, we, we just need to make a great pre-roll that is consistent every time. And we, uh, we kind of went to the wall for that. We imported a hop milling machine to create our pre-roll input. So we're able to get super consistent inputs for the pre-rolls. And A B tested like crazy things like density and pack and the way that it's closed at the top. And we really A B tested our way into a perfect pre-roll. And then we've made, you know, made and sold millions and millions and millions of those cents. And like what does it cost to to make one? What do you wholesale it for? And then what does it retail for? Yeah. So the inputs are are obviously a big component, and that is very, very dynamic in every market and by market, et cetera. But you're talking, you know, depending on on where the end product is sitting on the shelf, anywhere from probably ten cents to 
a dollar, dollar and a half on on the input. Today with with labor, we have a big uh, Israeli uh, pre-roll machine that can crank out pre-rolls a, a lot faster than the old days. But it's it's probably like nine to twelve on on labor, and then components are pretty run of the mill, especially on like your typical pre-roll. Um, if you go into a shop, nine out of ten pre-rolls are the same pop top, child resistant tube, and a label. So it's another you know between like eight and and probably twenty cents on on those components. So it's a really simple skew, but as you can imagine, it's an absolute staple in the industry. Okay, so when you're making deals with the growers, what matters? when you're making a deal with a grower and are these obviously professional growers that can guarantee a certain amount of product or is this, you know, some hippie that just has a, you know, a grow room and like, how how do you decide who you're going to work with and what matters when you're deciding who to buy from? Yeah, I think that, you know, so all agriculture supply chains are pretty, pretty nuanced. We, we used to work with a guy who did, uh, did tortilla tortilla manufacturing, right? And so he's sourcing corn from all over the world. And even in an industry that's that mature, there's a ton of variability in those inputs and then how they contract to them. So in cannabis, it's I'd say it's that on steroids, right? You have stuff that you can measure like THC percentage, which is a big piece of the equation. But so so much of the end product is still flour-based. So it's literally, I'm buying the flour. So things like look have a huge impact on it obviously knows how it smells in addition to the THC. So there's a lot of different ways I've seen agreements structured, uh, supply agreements structured with growers. And pretty much all of them allow for just like a ton of flexibility because of all of these variables. And then you you add to that like how immature the industry is. Like price fluctuations are are all over the board. They vary a lot market to market, right? Because every single state has a constrained supply there within the state. So what it looks like in Oregon versus California versus Florida is pretty different, but it it varies like crazy. So even things like price, like it's pretty difficult and pretty nuanced to do. I will buy everything that tests over 25% THC at this price a year from now. I think everybody, it doesn't really line up for anybody to make big commitments like that without you know, flexibility built in. It's it's pretty nuanced. It'd be a lot easier if it wasn't. And are most of these growers growing outdoors or indoors? Yeah. So th- this is actually a pretty core thing to the industry that I didn't realize was lost on uh, as many folks that are outside of it. But generally speaking, like indoor is top shelf. Sun-grown is more value. And there's like incredible sun-grown cannabis, but it's still value product because you don't have a power bill and in an, and, uh, and a gas bill the way that you do if you're running a, a perfectly controlled indoor environment. And th- there's a lot in between too, right? So one end of the spectrum, you have grown in the sun, gets rained on outdoor. And then the other end of the spectrum is, is indoor. But it, the line really falls that way. Outdoors is a value product. Indoor is premium. And pricing goes, goes accordingly. And there's also... Growers have not mastered boutique craft premium indoor at scale. Nobody has. Uh, so you see a lot of people that are like, well, we've got a grower that grows amazing stuff 20 lights at a time. It doesn't really, it doesn't work to do, okay, let's take that 20 lights and make it 200. And it also, people are having huge problems taking that 20 lights and doing it 10 more times, right? So like 10 smaller rooms or whatever the case may be. Uh, we're, we're still so early on all of these things. If you think about it, 
five years ago, anybody doing that had to like hide everything about it, right? <laughs> so even though we're out in the open now, it's just so immature and so early on, on so much of these things. Do you know why it's harder to do at scale? I mean, as an idiot, I just sit here and go, what is 20 more lights? You water 20 more plants. Right. Why is it harder uh, as it gets bigger? You know, I, I'm like not super deep in uh, cultivation in general or that corner of our business. You know, we're not the only people that have done the spreadsheet, right? <laughs> that you just described where it's like, drag it out to the right and we're, and we're good to go. I think at the end of the day, it's, it's like agriculture with finicky, finicky plants. You know, like cannabis plants are not, not the hardiest. And again, when that end product is the flower, that like really ups the bar for everything involved. When you have the end product that is the cartridge or the edible, where, you know, the, the inputs for those SKUs are a lot of time distillate or some full spectrum extract where, um, you know, a lot of that stuff can be grown in what we call oil fields, oil fields a different kind of oil field than what you're used to. Mm-hmm. But, uh, <laughs> you know, just, just just fields of plants that don't need to be pruned. They obviously need nutrients and they need to be kept healthy, but you just grow it, chop it down, bucket and and run it to oil. Um, that's a very different proposition. And that those kind of operations can have much more consistent uh, outputs. And those are the types of, uh, those are the pieces of the supply chain that can be contracted much easier. Got it. Okay, so... When, when the when the grower, whether it's indoor or outdoor, is has kind of harvested their product, what kind of checks and balances do they go through to make sure that what you ordered is what you're going to get? What what kind of testing happens so that by the time it arrives at your door, you know that it's good stuff? Yeah. So all the testing requirements are mandated at the state level. So um, right, a little bit different in Oregon than in California, but generally speaking, right, that is the biggest concern of the state when creating their regulations. So everything from pesticides to molds and everything in between, all of that is tested for in that process. So again, the the state variable is an interesting one. In Oregon, everything comes to us with a test slapped on it, ready to go. We already know exactly what it looks like. In California, that is uh, prevented by the regulation, or you can have a test, but as the end distributor, you're gonna have to test it again. So. To protect ourselves and know what we're getting into, though, we will we will get an R and D test as it's coming in, so that we know generally what to expect and that it's going to come out clean and compliant, and then do it again later. But all the all the ugly stuff is handled by the state, fortunately, right? And you can look at these COAs and see um, a crazy amount of information about what is being picked up or not. How do you how do they measure for THC? Like the amount of THC in something is it? Like, how do they know if it's 25% or 20 or 30? Yeah, I mean, I'm not the scientist, but it's they're using like big Siemens machines uh, that are, you know, pretty typical in any lab. The, the labs are simultaneously, you know, some of the more sophisticated operations as well as a bit of a crapshoot, right? Because in theory, if I have 10 labs, I send the same sample to, I should get, you know, within a varying degree of, of uh, variants like a pretty consistent result, and that's not the case, right? And and what comes back, especially at the THC level, is such a massive part of like the success of a business and like how what that product can be sold for, so on and so forth. And uh, it's all in the hands of those labs that are <laughs> disappointing to say the least. Hope none of them end up listening to this, but they they probably know. Yeah, <laughs> they know they get the stink eye often. 
All right. So you start the business. Um, you're in Oregon. It's you and, and four guys and, and you're doing the pre-rolls. Was there kind of an inflection point where you were like, okay, we're going to grow? And what did growing look like from there? What was the next kind of big evolution of the business? Yeah. So growing on the cultivation meaning of the wor- word was fairly recent. So we can get to that. But growing in general just meant at the end of the day, this is like we're an outbound sale on, on the distribution side. We are an outbound sales organization with logistics, right? We have distribution sub- hubs. We put products on trucks. We, de- we deliver them to uh, brick and mortar retail. Like a lot of the components of this are, are pretty straightforward. So growing for us, like out of the gate was initially like, okay, flour at the end of the day is a bit of a commodity, uh, really, until unless you're, you're premium. And so we need to put ourselves in a position to uh, build brand and build brand equity and slide slide in there. So that was that was the next move entirely, and really just pushing our revenue from being what we'd consider third party when we're just distributing flour or or another brand, and shifting both energy and then ultimately like uh, revenue uh, at the end of the day into our own brands. And so from there, you know, we we launched brands, and then it's been two and a half. Two and a half years now since we did our our first M and A activity and uh, merged with a a brand in California called Corova with a very similar footprint to us. So Corova uh, is like a top top five, top ten, depending on where you look, brand in California. And our our first roll up was us Corova, us here in Oregon, Corova, and a retailer in Santa Ana, and that was kind of like the beginning of the. The beginning of the next chapter in terms of like really introducing scale to the equation for everything that we're doing, and then landing where we are, uh, where we are today. And when you're talking about brands, are you saying, you know, I can go to the store and buy this branded joint or this branded joint or this branded joint? What do you What do you mean by brands? Yeah, exactly. I mean, I think so. The alcohol parallels are pretty uh, helpful to talk through in cannabis. They only go so far, but. When I look at our brands, like Sticks is like our Bud Light, right? So it's it's sun grown, it's a value brand, it's accessibly priced, and, and then you go all over the map. Uh, Cabana is like a, a Vuv Clico, Corova to me in my eyes, and uh, our creative director probably has a much more detailed vision. But Corova is like a Jack, right? It's a it's a it's a darker brand. It's for like enthusiasts and 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 whiskey folk, if you will, not literally whiskey folk, but. I think the the alcohol parallels are really good and and line up pretty well. And that's exactly what we mean. And if you look at the mechanics of how those brands actually come to the shelf, it's not different a lot of the time, right? Like Grey Goose isn't like growing. That's a bad example. Vuve isn't glow, growing grapes, right? All, all that is contracted into the brand. We recently uh, have introduced that, uh, the actual cultivation piece, because it does wonders for what I described as an inconsistent uh, supply chain. But yeah, it's the the alcohol parallel is a pretty good one there. Okay, so you said like the Bud Light. What what would be like the I'm I'm now transferring to to car brands. But what would be like the Ferrari brand? Is that something that has a lot of THC? Is that something that just tastes really good? Like what makes something like top 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 shelf? Yeah, so it's an obnoxious answer, but like that varies by market. But generally speaking, and I think this will be the case for at least several years to come, it is THC. You also have, you know, full spectrum versus full spectrum extracts and full spectrum extract based SKUs 
versus things that are more fungible, like the and that are made from distillate, um, which which are similar, right? So like generally speaking, like full spectrum of cannabinoids and potency are like the markers. Potency, the THC level, still really drives that, and it's going to for the foreseeable future. And for context on that, the Crova brand was like really born out of a skew called the Black Bar that was a thousand milligram edible. Um, right. So like un, unri- the origin of the name unrivaled is unrivaled potency. So yeah, ab- absolutely. Like you're, nobody's doing a premium brand despite, you know, they, they try, but nobody's doing a premium brand. That's not high potency. Got it. When you were starting, how were you financing everything? Was, was it, had, did it have to be all cash or were you able to use banks and could you use bank accounts uh, again from being from Texas? It's, you know, the conversation's always that, you know, you, you can't deposit money at a bank and you can't borrow from a bank. Was that different where you were? How, how were things financed? No, not at all. So, I mean, in terms of like functionally and cash flow wise, we were bootstrapped. And then even after, you know, uh, even after going through some M&A and, and having some outside capital, it's such a low margin cash flow intensive business that it's always felt very, very bootstrapped, uh, even when it hasn't been. But it all started just self-funded and then rolling from there. In terms of the mechanics of, of financing and, and using banks and banking infrastructure, I think I'm personally blackballed from a couple of the big big box banks. And early on, I think there was leading up to getting into the compliant bank, I think we had five checking accounts in, you know, in nine or 10 months. And obviously me being thrown out of B of A or whoever it was, was, was part of one of those switches. But it's, uh, you know, today you basically have several, I don't understand the, the differences between a credit union versus a bank, but there are several credit unions that have said, okay, we're going to have marijuana programs for legal marijuana businesses. And so uh, they'll play ball. It's still very basic and uh, generally expensive, so on and so forth. But I'm sitting in Portland right now in, in Oregon. Uh, the closest branch is almost an hour away. Uh, you know the 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 fees to have a checking account are like you you've never heard of a bank that that charges that, but we can go deposit six figures cash and be transparent about where it came from, and it works and it goes into the bank and we can send a wire transfer and run payroll and and do all these things that didn't used to be the case and that everybody else takes for granted. Can you get lines of credit or like traditional no. loans? No, no, not at all. There's some like really bizarre factoring programs and really creative ways. You know, there's basically like some really high interest options. We've played with some of them, like one of the big marketplaces in the in the space raised a fund to do to do that. But it's pretty cost prohibitive, as you you might expect. And uh, it's, yeah, it's definitely, you don't realize what you've got till it's gone in terms of running payroll. Yeah, <laughs> like liter- literally something that that simple. Yep. Is there anything on the horizon that you're aware of that will kind of make the cannabis industry a more kind of banking friendly business or is it a long way out? So there's the the Safe Banking Act, which is I think will come before federal legalization, you know, aims to to alleviate that. I don't really know what that ends up looking like over the next it probably means nothing over the next 12 to 18 months if I if I had to guess. But there, there's big efforts being made, again, pre-federal legalization. Um, once that happens, it should be pretty run-of-the-mill. But another place that it has a huge impact is credit card process, 
credit card processing in our dispensaries and in any dispensary, really, right? Like, again, you get to go into a 7-Eleven and like, you know, I'd use tap to pay or Apple pay or whatever all the time. And there are a lot of really creative workarounds to get a credit card used. We've tried a lot of them. It's pretty nightmare UX for the, the end consumer, which is what we're focused on. But we've got a pretty solid solution for that right now. But it's still just nowhere near just the typical buying a product at a store experience. So when you all are doing M&A, you're basically either self-funding out of cash you all have or you're, you're just raising cash to buy these businesses. Yeah. Can you speak at all, maybe with the first company you bought, like how, are, how do you value these businesses? Is it just a multiple of cash flow or are there other things unique to the cannabis industry on how these things are valued? Yeah, I think there's a ton that's unique. So the licenses themselves obviously have value and and what that is varies drastically by market again. But out here on the West Coast, licensing is much more open than a lot of places in the country. All right. I think like in New York, there's like they issued 10 or something to that effect. But I think it's all infrastructure. And just like with any acquisition and any business, like the value of said business varies so greatly depending on who's who's acquiring it. So, you know, for us, you're looking at obviously the the revenue involved and whether or not it's currently profitable. But outside of the physical license, it's also the infrastructure and the capabilities, right? Like you, we are not currently doing any extraction or processing, right? And and we haven't at any point. If that day comes, you know, you either are sit there, sit there with the uh, opportunity to go buy a bunch of machines and hire people and figure it out, or you can just go scoop it up. And I think that's probably, that's where valuations get all over the board. And you also have an opportunity to leapfrog leapfrog folks by just going and acquiring a, a capability like that. And so like that first M&A transaction, what, what capability were you acquiring there? Well, so that was a roll up between us and like, like I said, Crove in the spot. So I mean, f- like for me, functionally, it went from like, great, we have one hub in Portland, Oregon, we serve Oregon to overnight, where we have NorCal, SoCal, and Oregon, and we're now in Oregon and California, and have our own retail, right? So that was getting into new markets and also dipping into retail um, in California, which we we previously hadn't hadn't played ball in, or I I hadn't. So that was like that was just purely market, really, as much as anything else, because the distribution licenses are we can do light manufacturing, right, which is like pre rolls and whatnot, but there's not uh, there's no you know no million dollar extraction machines in those licenses, and it's just extraction the ability machine. to run trucks. An extraction machine would be taking the THC out and then putting it into oils or edibles or things like that. Right, exactly. So you you basically there's a handful of different techniques, but right, you're turning it into either distillate, uh, which is you know also referred to as hot dog water or TH, THC juice, right? So distillate is just like it is THC extracted from the plant. It's oil, um, and then how potent it is just varies on how much of the other cannabinoids, fats, lipids that you've pulled out of it. And that is like, that's the input to a lot of edibles on the market. It's the input to a lot of cartridges. And then you also have full spectrum extraction where you're leaving a lot more of that in. You got a lot more flavors, a lot more cannabinoids still in the mix. And that's a lot of, that is really hot right now in general, but that's the inputs for a lot of the higher end cartridges and a lot of the more interesting edibles and uh, drinks on the market right now are these full spectrum ac- extracts that give you a lot more flavor and then have the the effects that, that come with way more cannabinoids, um, et cetera. 
And just to confirm, are y'all what products do you sell now? Is it still just the pre-roll joints or do y'all have a, a line of products now outside of those? Yeah. So we are in like our two big brands, Crova and Sticks, are just about in every category, right? So Crova's flour, pre-rolls, edibles, extracts, tinctures, probably missing something there. And then sticks is sticks is similar. There's no edibles under sticks, but uh, pre-rolls are obviously a staple cartridges, yada, yada, yada. So we're both of our, our core brands are on just about every shelf. And I think that's, I think that's a really interesting sign of the maturity of the industry, right? If you walk into a grocery store, like you go like Cheez-Its are doing Cheez-It crackers. They're not also doing Cheez-It Mountain Dew and Cheez-It, you know, chocolate candies. And if you take that same parallel and apply it to cannabis, it's, it's pretty bizarre. And I think it's just purely a function of like where we're at in the industry. Got it. And if y'all don't have the extraction machines, is somebody else basically preparing the product, giving it to you at wholesale, and then you're just brand, uh, repackaging, branding it, and then selling it through your distribution? Yeah, it varies across product lines. But yeah, we have contract manufacturers. Generally speaking, it comes to us completely done. But we're, it's still, you know, we're still doing, running the supply chain for all the components and packaging, and then just dropping it on our manufacturer and getting, getting a finished good back. All right. So you did one M&A and, and your latest transaction was you basically took the company public. Can you speak to kind of how that came to be and why y'all chose to do that? Yeah. So I think the... So we're, we're traded on the OTCQX, right? Any quote, air quote, cannabis company that's on NASDAQ generally is not actually plant touching. I guess this will depend when that comes out if something's changed, which God knows it could. We're on OTC and basically... For us, obviously, being publicly traded is is the the biggest venue, um, or or OTC being the the biggest venue we can currently get into, and we basically um, so this company TerraTech that's one of the original publicly traded cannabis companies, I think twelve years ago or something like that, and we basically did a a merger with TerraTech, which at the time, so we're talking July of this year when that was closed, and I think March ish when it was announced. So at this point, Terratech had two stores and then several cultivation assets that were not off the ground, right? And so freshly installed new executive team. And we did our merger and just got to work with a bunch of existing assets that were just not, not across the finish line. So we're able to very quickly right go from July to it's now October. We've got grows online. We've launched launch delivery hubs out of one of the stores and and we're moving very very quickly on the back of those assets that uh that were sitting around ready for us basically. Okay, I'm going to ask a dumb question. Go a little deeper. Yeah. What what assets are you talking about? I mean, cultivation licenses and facilities. Got it. Retail stores as well as years ago somebody at Terratech invested in a company called Hydrofarm that makes grow equipment. So we also had 40 million dollars ish. Uh, that's not an exact number. Um, in Hydrofarm stock that the lockup ended, uh, I believe, in June or July. I can't remember exactly. So there's also War Chest. And so for us, you know, we basically executed a 50-50 merger with that group. We rebranded to Unrivaled Brands and we're, we're generally taking things by storm, moving very quickly. We acquired two more companies this summer, a delivery service based out of NorCal and then a store called Peoples, which is if you're in Southern California, Peoples is arguably the most prominent dispensary. And you know, by the dollar, 
you don't, you never really know, but by the dollar, I think it's like top three in California, which means top three in the world, probably outside of uh, Planet 13 in Vegas. But People's is, is a monster. It's like 1,000 transactions a day, serious revenue. I think the store is going to do like 31 or 32 million is what we've publicly said on the year. And so we're just moving fast. And that, that acquisition came with a couple more licenses in varying states in California. So we're, we're just picking these balls up and, and running with them very, very fast. Okay, you keep talking about licenses. Are these licenses to be able to distribute? Like, what are these licenses sure, give yeah. you the ability to do? Yeah, so cannabis licenses. So the, the naming is a little bit different, but we're talking retail, distribution, or wholesale, depending on what market you're in cultivation or production again d- depending on on what market you're in so every you know every uh, pillar of the industry has a different license type and there's different you know restrictions and capabilities around those license types so processing or manufacturing is what you need to you know turn biomass into oil that kind of thing yeah they're all just function based and the delivery service you bought is basically so that you can like deliver straight to somebody's house yeah, straight to consumers, right? So that's a retail license um, for delivery, and exactly, exactly. You you order order your weed, and it shows up at your door. Okay, to talk just a little bit about like medicinal versus recreational. Obviously, you have to have a medicinal license to be able to buy medicinal recreational. I, I guess you just need an ID that shows you're of age. Do you sell to both? Like, what? What's the difference? Do you do you show up to the same spot, and whether you have a medicinal license or your recreational depends on like what you pay and what you can get, or how, what's the difference? Right. So, and I'm speaking to. I know that there's like some interesting things happening with like you know Marinol and like like in pharmacies, but generally speaking, when we're having this conversation, you're basically talking about different dosages that are allowed or different quantities that the consumer can buy. So like at the most basic level, if you have a medical card, you can buy way more flour or you can buy this higher dose edible kind of a scenario. I think with with so much of actual usage of medical cards went down so much when recreational happened because, you know, so many people that had medical cards to buy were like functionally, it's like I'm just buying a joint, right? So there there's not a whole lot of pure medical SKUs on the market. There are definitely some. But generally speaking, it's it's potency and then quantity based. And there's no tax. You don't have the recreational tax either. And do, do, the, do the customers show up to the same store? Or does a medicinal customer go somewhere different? Yeah. So generally, yes. Same store. Varies, varies by market a lot. But, you know, so I'm, I'm closest with the Oregon market because it's where I've been doing this for five years. And it's like, I think in my time doing this, I'm aware of one or maybe two dispensaries that were medical that didn't flip to recreational. Got it. Of like of like six or seven hundred in the state. Okay. You said one thing that just piqued my curiosity. You said the companies that are on the NASDAQ are not plant touching. What does that mean? Yeah. I mean, it means exactly like it sounds, like not physically, yeah, like so like not license holding and not touching the plant. So what we do, whether it's growing it or selling it to a retailer or selling it to consumers, all those are, are plant touching. So, like so it's, it, ancil- it's ancillary. Like Hydrofarm might be a good... Ex- I don't know what exchange they're on, but Hydrofarm makes grow equipment. There's a lot of stuff. And a lot of, a lot of the companies that are doing like the more pharmace- pharmaceutical stuff that you see. Yeah. Got it. 
I haven't really asked you this. I usually ask this at the beginning, but what do you do in this company? You are the CTO now. You were the COO. What does that mean? So today I'm spending a ton of our, like what we are doing, we are scaling, right? And so we're integrating and scaling. So like literally over the last 90 days, we're integrating two new companies into our entire ecosystem, which is an obnoxious amount of, pardon me, bullshit on that front. But then we're also, we're also very, very tech forward. And I think that if you look at what we do, like I said, a lot of it isn't rewriting the book, right? Like it's putting boxes on trucks and it's selling products to consumers. And a lot of the stuff in the technology realm is, is pretty, pretty archaic because it's the most basic stuff, right? The software companies in this space have been doing it for only a couple of years and that kind of thing. So I can't talk a whole lot about like, you know, what is, what is coming down the pipeline specifically in this realm. But I think generally it's like we're, we're super focused on user experience. And so like buying online and having it show up is going to be a big part of our future buying online and then picking it up on your way home from work and having incredible user experiences around that is going to be a big part of the future for us. And yeah. And then I've like, we're also like a, a big chunk of our internal tools are custom built. You know, like our CRM is probably the best example of that. I tried to figure out how to make a CRM work for what we do for three and a half or four years until we started working on what we have now. And I think we've, we've finally figured it out and it's completely custom. We've built it all internally. Yeah. And then I also, right, like I'm like effectively, it's much more complicated than this, but I'm effectively like a founder of, of this. It's obviously not that straightforward with, uh, with the merger and, and Terratech and whatnot, but I'm like, I'm, I'm an entrepreneur in this and I'm just like, I've got my hands in, in everything. And we're, we're a pretty lean and mean team and we're doing a ton and we're moving extremely fast. So there's a, a big element of like a, a little bit of everything. Got it. All right. I'm going through a couple of our notes from our call. I'm trying to ask these questions the right way, but one of them I have in quotes, generational weed brand. And the comment I wrote is there are brands that are the real deal that are born in the culture versus at an agency. Can you speak to that? Yeah. So I think we were talking about that in lieu of, I can't remember his name. One, my favorite podcast of yours is... Nishant. Yep. So, right. And he was talking about a beverage brand that he was doing. I love that episode, by the way. I think that... uh He's like categorically wrong on his outlook on cannabis products of of like today. And I think that being said, it's a very, very common outlook and in my opinion, misconception of the industry. And that is that like the trendy people that are like at a cocktail party are also cannabis consumers. And of course there are those people, but the, you know, the hypothetical soccer mom cannabis consumer, both by headcount and by dollars, is a tiny, tiny cannabis consumer. Right. And so that day will come. And I think a lot of time when that consumer starts becoming a consumer, they shift away from uh, the super low dose uh, SKUs because they actually want to engage with with uh, cannabis. But I just think it's a super common misconception. And the brands that the brands that will be here in, in 20, 30, 100 years are not going to be the soccer mom brand. Maybe in 100, I guess. If you look at alcohol, again, as a parallel, it's like, the white claws of the world only come about every now and then. Anheuser-Busch and their family of brands and a lot of the liquor brands, like those are the staples. And there are definitely some extensions of those that are that are going after a demographic, but it's like the people that drink beer drink most of the beer, right? That's the that is the punchline. And so our we are 
I spent a lot of time like leaning into like normalizing cannabis and and all this. And and that's nice and that day will come. But the people that consume cannabis are not the people that are trying to hide it and that are, you know, afraid to be a part of that culture. And that's where we're like really leaning into cannabis consumers because they buy weed. And like I said, the the brands of the future will be formed by the culture. They are not manufactured by marketing agencies. And yeah. End rant. End rant. Nishant, listen. <laughs> Can you just describe the customers for a little bit? Is your typical customer somebody that's coming, you know, in once a week or once a month? Are these people that, you know, are just coming to California and doing the California thing and buying a bunch and trying to get it back to wherever they live? Or What's like a typical, what's your typical customer like? Yeah, it's a tough one. Demographically, it's like a bit all over the board. I think the the point that I'm making is that like, it's not somebody that doesn't actually smoke weed. Um, you know, we try and be friendly, especially from a retail standpoint, like very friendly to that, uh, to that uh, demographic or that audience and uh, uh, be accessible. But most of them are there a couple times a month at least, right? The flip side of that consumer is somebody that like buys a low dose vape and then it lasts them six months. And again, that's just, that's not the, the large, that's, that's not the big part of the market. So it's, it's generally like it varies by brand. Like the Crova brand is like a, a low twenties to late twenties. There's a big female contingency there. It's very, very counterculture, just like the, the brand is aligned and it's people that aren't afraid to <laughs> smoke weed or, or, or have it be known that they smoke weed. It, it's potheads. Yep. Can you speak at all to kind of the boomer generation that probably grew up where weed was a huge stigma? You know, they would never touch it. I actually have family members, I won't name them, that, you know, I never thought would have, <laughs> you know, taken a gummy. And now that it's it's legal, they'll do it. Is the boomer generation kind of coming around to it now that it's legal? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And I think like, you know, from a business standpoint, it just comes down to like how many dollars are those folks actually consuming? And then do you really need to position a brand? Is it enough to position an entire brand after around them? So uh, yeah, absolutely. I it all it still gives me a it still throws me for a little bit of a loop when uh, my mom or dad makes a comment about, you know, smoking a joint or, or eating an edible, even though we're, you know, five years into a me doing what I do, but also just like that being a fairly normal thing. It's a huge demographic. And I think for those really for anybody that is not, you know, doesn't fit what I was just describing as like the pothead consumer. I really like, especially the, it's like the tincture space is really interesting to me because you get, first of all, the bang per buck is, is incredible. Like our black bottle tincture is a thousand milligrams in a, in a little bottle, but then it's also like, it's a dropper. Right. So if I figure out that like one drop is what makes me feel good in the morning or three drops is, is what knocks me out and helps me sleep better, like it's a very repeatable and, and uh, user friendly and consistent experience there. And so I, I think that the edibles is like the easy place for that type of user to go. That being said, there's also like a lot of nostalgia with smoking a joint and, and smoking flour. So I know that, that uh, that's a part of the mix as well. Got it. All right, a couple more in questions on the industry and then some personal ones and we'll we'll bring it home. But is there anything that keeps you up at night about the industry at this point? Or does it is there just a lot of tailwinds kind of that are pushing this industry in a positive way? Is there any risk that you're seeing right now? It seems to be bipartisan kind of agreement that we all kind of agree that it's 
you know, not as bad as we once thought it was, but is there anything (laughs) out there that keeps you up at night? No, I think like maybe not to flip it, but maybe the opposite way. Like I'm not overly obsessed with cannabis and how amazing it is, but it's a completely amazing plant. And I think we're like not even scratching the surface of what it is because like I'm describing, the core consumer is like a pothead and it's just so much bigger than that. It's so much bigger than that. And to get directly to your question, I've spent a lot of time doing this where it was so much sketchier than it is now. It's pretty easy sailing compared to what it's been. And I'm also not the not the worrier. I've got my wife for that. So it probably kept her up more than it's kept me up. Is there anything on the horizon in a positive way that you're really excited about, whether that's legislation or you know something that might happen in the next 12 to 24 months that could make this legal in every state. Is there anything big coming down the pipeline that an idiot like me from Texas would want to know about? I'm excited about what federal legalization will do for share prices for small cap over the over the counter companies like mine. You have to kind of have the perspective of there's no denying that there's a massive market here and the estimations of what it currently is and what it can be are not even in the ballpark of what it actually is because of the amount of gray and black market that that still happens. So just like stepping back to like, you know, look at how the markets work and, and how companies are, are valued. There is when when federal legalization happens, I think generally the entire pot stocks as they're known, uh, that should work out pretty well for. Um, that's exciting. And then I think also for, you know, we're big on West Coast, right? Like West Coast is is our shtick. That's where we are. That's where we're from. That really shapes a lot of what we're doing. And I think that when it goes federal, the West Coast, A, West Coast brands are going to be the biggest brands in the country, you know, both five years from now and 50 years from now. And then you have in Northern California and Southern Oregon, you have one of the best climates in the world for growing outdoor, right? Which means that when we can ship to Michigan, there's no reason to grow flower in Michigan. There's no reason to try and grow outdoor flower in Michigan, which you really can't do, especially not when you can just import it from from the West Coast. So, so for us, I'm I'm really excited for federal legalization for for all of those reasons, and particularly the brand one. Like money, money is money, but I think there's an opportunity here that comes around every so often to, like I said, create brands that are completely generational, that our descendants will ultimately consume once they're 21 years of age. And it's uh, exciting to be staring that down the down the cannon every day. Don't ship it to Michigan. Ship it to Texas. Yeah, right. Te- Texas Texas got a lot of sun though, so it's hard to say. The yeah. soil though, I'm not I'm not sure that'll pan out as well. It's legal in Oklahoma, just north of us, right? But Texas, we're not there yet. Do you do you have any idea of when it'll be federally kind of released? Is that in the next five years, two years, one year? I think five is probably realistic. You know, if they figure out what that looks like in the next two years, the time that it takes to roll out, then I I think in the next five years is probably reasonable. Okay. I have to ask a a cannabis guy, is CBD even a real thing or is it a total, what do you call it? A a placebo effect? (laughs) Yeah. CBD is incredible. Like cannabis is an incredible plant. And I... There's a lot of folks that say that that are really, really hokey. The inside joke that I have that I'll say here is like is like the healing plant, right? And it completely is that. It's an incredible plant. There are tons of cannabinoids. So like THC is a cannabinoid. CBD is a cannabinoid. 
there are hundreds in the plant. There are cannabinoids that they haven't even like isolated and discovered or named yet. And it's crazy. I think the the trickiest part about it is they interact with everybody very, very differently. And to make it even, even trickier, there's a big... So it's called the entourage effect. And the entourage effect is basically science that says we don't know what the hell is going on here, but we know that they interact with each other. Right? So like how high you get or what kind of high you get is not just how much THC is there. It's what else is there. And that includes cannabinoids as well as the terpenes, you know, which like terpenes are a big part of our lives uh, no matter what, right? There's a lot of parallels with cannabis and, and wine in that regard in terms of like the aromas and the tastes. But the entourage effect is is like such a massive piece of it. And then how that interacts with with my psychology is very different from how it interacts with yours. And see, I'm saying all this to say that CBD is the real deal. And in general, like it's a incredible and completely untapped plant. And I'm not some uh, stoner pothead saying that. It, it really and truly is. I think it's... Uh, we were just spitballing recently in terms of like how we articulate that to the market and to our team without being this hokey cannabis weed thing. And it's like, I think where we landed is it is a gateway to well-being and not not in the, I can see the pictures forming in your in your head, but it's like, look, we have a lot of people that like a drop of that THC tincture in the morning. It's micro dosing, right? And that's their usage. That's how they use cannabis. Or maybe it's the CBD, or maybe it's a topical that, you know, my father, my father-in-law puts a topical on his wrist that has bugged him for years and it's like no longer an issue for him. And that's a CBD topical. It's really something else. And we're not even scratching the surface yet. Okay. You changed my mind on CBD. <laughs> that I, was what, my most like unhinged rant on weed I've had. So let's keep that in there for sure. <laughs> when Tiger Woods chewed CBD gum at the Masters a couple of years ago, I bought some, I think I played a few good rounds of golf and then I played a few bad rounds and I, I was like, I was trying to feel something. I don't know if I ever did, but anyway, Tiger Woods chewing CBD gum might have been one of the best things to ever happen to CBD. <laughs> All right. One more question on cannabis. Is there anything in the market that's being created that could stop someone from being high? So anybody that's taken a gummy or an edible has that story where they might have eaten too much or didn't realize what they took. Is there anything out there where you could just like take a pill and in 20 minutes it kind of has the adverse effect and gets rid of the high? There's so I'm reluctant to speak to it without getting onto the Google machine because I don't know much about this. But there's, I believe it's Delta 9, which is a kind of THC. The, the answer is yes. And it's actually stuff from the plant it's, itself. And like I said, I'm reluctant to, to talk about it without getting on my keyboard and searching for 90 seconds or, or two minutes here. But um, yeah, there is stuff like that. But generally speaking, I don't know, the worst case scenario is a quote overdose, which means you fall asleep and then you're groggy when you wake up. Yeah. All right. Two personal things and then we'll bring it home. You spent five years before getting into the cannabis industry at some point in your career managing music and trying to make a rapper famous. Give us like the two minute summary of what that experience was like and what you learned from all that. You said it was the hardest thing you'd have ever done. Yeah, far and away, far and away. I think in normal industries, you create value and you give that to the you give that to the ecosystem, to the consumer, and you generally like get something out of it, right? And music is a black box. I think a lot of creative spaces are probably like that, but uh, far and away, the hardest thing I've ever tried to do, just because creativity 
is subjective and it's it's uh, pretty difficult to monetize until it's of size. So I actually, so one of our top sales reps in the entire company is uh, the the subject of uh, that that chapter of my life. He was the talent. I still see him every day. I think everyone's life is better having kind of like gotten to the other side of that. It's brutally difficult. I wouldn't wish it upon uh, my worst enemy to try and make something like that work. But it's also labor love and very, very formative for me. I like. I definitely have had some moments of of feeling like a lot of time and, and years were wasted there. But that is, in fact, uh, how we got here, right? Obstacle is the way is is a big part of my psyche, and uh, is brutally difficult. It's just like a coin toss, right? You put all this energy into this this work, and then it's a coin toss if anybody's going to pick it up or or like it. It's also dominated by gatekeepers, much much less so now with like the TikToks of the world. But uh, yeah, it sucks. I got a good friend who's still doing it, and I I occasionally I call him and plead him to move on with his life. So knowing what you know about trying to make somebody a famous musician, when you think about somebody like Justin Bieber, whose story was that Usher found a video of his on YouTube, are there people like Justin Bieber that will never get discovered just because they don't have that serendipitous moment or meet the right person? Or does somebody as talented as Justin Bieber always find their way to the top? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. And I guess there's probably a argument to be had over if Biebs is the example of that, but like, no, I think that there's an incredible amount of talent really in any creative space that goes unnoticed, relatively speaking. I think that that's the case for anything. You know, creative is probably not a big enough bucket. Like it's totally possible that Bitcoin was created and then never happened the way that it did. But uh, yeah, absolutely. And it's kind of like shocking to, to think about it that way especially when you have the impact of like a global superstar or a, a Bitcoin or, or similar. Those things drift away every single day, right? Yep. All right. Most of the people that listen to this are business folks. Uh, one thing we all have in common is we send a lot of emails. And the past week, you have shared with the Twitter world how you have been able to take your email time down. Can you just give us the cliff notes of how somebody could do better with their email? What, what did you do? Yes. First of all, completely life-changing. And I'm not just talking about for the process of emailing, but the peace of mind <laughs> when, it, when it's done or uh, you know, when it's the weekend and knowing that there's not like a pile of, of things to work through. So the gist of it, let me see. I just wrote this thread. So I've kind of got the structure here. It is first like minimizing the amount of stuff you have to slog through. So it's obviously unsubscribing from from BS, but it's also using filters and labels to take like automated things that you do in fact want to get or you will get like a automated ticket response from a ticketing system and automatically pulling those out of your inbox so that you could, you know, potentially search for it later or go to a label to look at it, but it's not like one of the things in your queue and therefore then like getting it out of your queue is one of the things. That is the first step. And then and then the default behavior. So reply all is something that probably most people most of the time are wanting to reply all instead of just reply. And so you can set up your inbox to do that by default rather than having to click reply all intentionally. And then archiving. Uh, so when you send, send and archive. And then finally, this is all just a lead up to get noise out of the way and streamline. Ultimately, just switching your entire workflow into hotkeys which means basically not using the trackpad, which is a superhuman, uh, the app superhuman is kind of like where I think that was born, at least in the modern era. 
but you just get to where you can navigate through your entire queue of emails. You can open one to read or open one to reply to. You can do the reply. You can send the reply. You can archive it. You can move past it. You can mark it as read and do all of that without ever taking your hands off the keyboard and going to the trackpad or mouse and then clicking and so on and so forth. And it's like, I do a lot of email. It's like it literally transformative for me. It, I went from like thousands of unread emails and then the like baggage of like, oh God, what's in there that I haven't gotten to, to that is never an issue. And I get, you know, all the communication that I need to get in. It's like huge, huge improvement on life. You're the man. All right, dude. This was awesome. More than I could have expected. How can uh, people find you or reach you if they want to uh, follow your stuff? Yeah. So my my real last name is Landforce, L-A-N-D-F-O-R-C-E. And that is my that is my handle on the internet. So in particular, Twitter, as you know, that's how we met. Um, I'm making a conscious effort to, to be on the internet at Twitter, on Twitter. And then finally, because we are doing a podcast, uh, me and a couple associates, one of which has been on here, James, James Camp, we just launched a podcast a, a few weeks ago, three or four weeks ago. It's called Tab Talk, and uh, we've been having a blast with it. You know, I think you read the conventional advice on how to how to podcast, and it's basically like make sure that you're doing something that you'd want to do if no one was listening, which I'd imagine is at least some part of what you're doing here, right? You're having conversations with people you wanted to talk to, anyway. And so uh, James and Oren and myself, we pretty much do a Tab Talk, uh, uh, a podcast that we talk about things that we find interesting. And we sat down to record the first one. And I like cried laughing and having fun <laughs> with my bros for the first time in like two years. And I was like, yeah, we th- this is definitely worth doing whether or not whether or not somebody listens to it. So um, it. Twitter and the, and the podcast. All right, dude. Thank you so much. This was awesome. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me, Chris. I appreciate it as well. Hey everyone, it's Chris here again. Thank you so much for joining me on this journey. If you enjoyed the show, please follow the show on Apple, Spotify, or subscribe on YouTube. Thanks again, and I'll see you on the next episode. Chris Powers is the founder and chairman of Fort Capital LP. All opinions from Chris and guests of the Fort podcast are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of Fort Capital LP. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for real estate or investment decisions. The Fort with Chris Powers is produced by Straight Up Podcasts.